walking through Soho with Romesh is like you're constantly getting phones handed to you saying, can you take a picture of me with Romesh? And you're like, sure. I was an uncle. <laughs> this week on Walking the Dog, I took Raymond for a stroll with comedian and actor Nick Helm in North London's Waterloo Park. Nick's very well known for his lead role in the successful BBC sitcom Uncle, his appearances on 8 out of 10 Cat Stars Countdown and his critically acclaimed stand-up shows. I actually first saw him at the Edinburgh Festival back in 2010 and was really blown away by his comedy. We had a lovely walk. We chatted about Nick's childhood growing up in North London, how he discovered comedy, and he was also really impressively open and honest about how he copes with mental health struggles. Nick wasn't entirely sold on Raymond at first. Basically, he's too slow and he does too many wheeze. Just to clarify, that's Raymond, not Nick. But by the end of our walk, he was cuddling him and even implying to strangers that he was Raymond's owner. It was the bromance I never thought would happen. I really warmed to Nick. He's very sensitive and empathetic and he made me laugh a lot. But mostly, any friend of Raymond's gets to be in my squad. I love my walk with Nick and I hope you do too. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe and check out Nick's projects and live dates via Twitter on at the Nick Helm. I'll stop talking now and hand over to the man himself. Here's Nick and Raymond. Are we going to go for a walk with Nick? Hello, Raymond. No. <laughs> what do you think of him, Nick? Um, well, I suppose every dog is an adventure. <laughs> I, don't I mean, this is the third piss he's gone for in five minutes. So is he marking his territory? He's got a very small bladder. Sure. Come on. He's, I, he hasn't consumed anything to piss out yet. <laughs> he's just pissing. He's quite slow. Sure, so he's got tiny little legs. Yeah, and I call it walking the dog, but he's not a great walker. Maybe um, that, that flags up a, a flaw in your podcast. <laughs> Come on, Raymond. He doesn't really seem to be particularly aware of you. You know, like he's just doing it himself <laughs> and you happen to be there. Yeah. How long have you had Raymond? I've had Raymond for four years. Four years? Yeah. Has he come for another pass? <laughs> this is the fourth pass. <laughs> Raymond. Raymond's. Yeah. So, I've brought Raymond along today, sure. and I'm interested to know what your view is of dogs, Nick. Are you are you a dog fan? I uh, I'm not a cat person, so by default I'm a dog person. Um, I always wanted a dog, but I didn't want to clear up the shit. So I'm I'm kind of like. I'm like an uncle when it comes to dogs. <laughs> Where I, I don't, don't have to own one, but I can get the benefits by just yeah. knowing people with dogs, I suppose. But I mean, your dog has it's got its own unique challenges, hasn't it? It's so slow. <laughs> he is slow, but I like his soul to sing openly. 
<laughs> you know what? If he wants to dawdle. I think it's fine. I think that um, I, I guess part of dog training is to protect other people from your dog. Mm. And part of it is to make it as fuss free as possible, right? Yeah. So that you can get to bed quickly, you can get it uh, to go for a walk quickly, you can put it back quickly. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like it makes it convenient for you. And if you don't need that convenience, as long as your dog isn't, you know, attacking other dogs and other people, then it's do what you like with it, right? Where's he gone? <laughs> you keep... <laughs> You keep saying that you've lost your dog, but it's normally just behind a lamppost or a person's <laughs> leg. Although, in this instance... Oh, what's your dog, what's your dog called again? Raymond. Raymond. It's, I mean, that's like the ninth time... Do you want to try and call asked. him? Because you've got... He might lose... Raymond! Him. Raymond! Oh, he's over there. But he's sat down. <laughs> And he's just, no, he's nowhere near you. And he's just sat there. I think there's like a happy middle ground, isn't there? Between being a disciplinarian and uh, just letting it do what... You're the pet. He owns you. Come on, Raymond. Very naughty. Naughty. He doesn't care. Come on. You get carried like a baby when you're naughty. He doesn't care. I think he prefers that. <laughs> he makes he makes up more ground if he's been carried than if he walks. Yeah. He loves it. I think he's going to really grow on you. By the way, I need to introduce you formally. I always forget to do that bit. This is Walking the Dog, and I'm so excited to have the very wonderful Nick Helm with me today. And we're... What well, do you want to tell us where we are, Nick? Where are we? Yeah, where are we? I got an Uber here. I can't remember where we are. Where are we? We're in Waterloo Park. Waterloo Park, that's where we are. Because you said you were keen to meet in a park in North London. Yeah, I've never been here. What do you think? I mean, we've seen the cafe and a bit of a path. <laughs> but so far, yeah, it's amazing. Oh, look, there's a lake, a pond. Well, do you the know lake. the history? So we were just in that cafe which is called Lauderdale House. Yes. And I think it was built for, like as a mistress's house for Nell Gwynne. Right. Quite a nice mistress's house. Um, but it's really beautiful here. I love it here. And I know you mentioned you wanted to meet in sort of Hampstead or Highgate. Are you North London then? Yeah, I grew up just down the road from here. Well, this is dinky, isn't it? A tiny little bridge. Someone's left, what's that, a top or trousers? What does it say? Sorry, I hate plans with mum. No, sorry, I have plans oh, with mum. Oh, I have plans with mum. <laughs> sorry, that's Freudian. <laughs> I, hate, I hate plans with mum. I have pl Sorry, I have plans with mum. And it's a kid's T-shirt, isn't Tiny it? Tiny little kid's jumper. Oh, hopefully they'll get it back. We've headed north because... This is kind of your manor. This is where you grew up, North London, isn't it? Yes. Well, a chunk of it. I was born, was born around here, and I grew up in Finsbury Park. And we used to go to Finsbury Park and Clissold Park. We used to live in between both of them. Oh, did you? 
and so it would be like you, it was like you go to Clissold Park for the deer, and you go to Finchley Park for the heroin. <laughs> but uh, we were we were very little, and there was a bit of a drug problem around the area, which cleared up when we moved. So, and what did your folks do? Uh, my mum was um, a maths lecturer, and my dad uh, worked uh, was a was a civil servant, and he worked for the Medical Research Council. I'm so impressed by people with maths brains. Did you inherit that? No. And I think it's a source of frustration. But like <laughs> numbers, my brain doesn't really work like that. And so when it gets into numbers and facts and statistics and stuff like that, my brain switches off. Really? But I like, I'm like a sponge. Like I'm, I'm obsessed with like, um, where's Raymond? <laughs> I'm not obsessed with where Raymond is, but where is... Nick, why don't we Raymond? call this podcast Where's Raymond? Where's Raymond? Come on, Raymond. Raymond. Hello, Raymond. Hello. Say hello to Nick. Hello, Raymond. No, hello. not even aware. <laughs> and what was your sort of family style like, if you like? Like, what sort of a family would you describe? Because I, I always have this thing about how I wanted to be in a dog family, which is why I'm obsessed by dogs now. And I think my mum loved maths. Well, she's still, she's still around. She's just not a maths lecturer anymore. But my mum when she was at school, loved maths. And I think having a career in maths is kind of like, was logical, it was like the next step. Whereas my dad, I think, um, was very artistic and very creative. And I think he chose a career that, but he, he, he didn't sort of like, he wasn't, he wasn't brought to a career. Oh, well, he did lots of stuff actually. They went, uh, they went all around sort of like Latin America together in the seventies. And then when they got back, my dad worked for Shelter. And uh, but I think that like my dad got a job because they had kids. Mm. So when my sister came along, it was like my mum was almost like I don't know. I've never really talked to her about it, but I guess my mum sort of like had a job that followed directly on from school. So maybe it was like a dream job. And my dad sort of like took one for the team and got a job that paid the bills. And were you, um, were you quite a sort of noisy, expressive family? Um, well, my dad and my mum, but I was, my dad really encouraged us to be creative and artistic uh, up to a point. So we were always like painting in the house and we were always sort of like entering sort of like art competitions when we were little. And, you know, we used to go to the Barbican every Saturday and okay. there was like a kids club at the Barbican. And there was a film club at the Barbican, so we always went to see films on Saturday mornings and he'd sit in the lobby and do his boring work and then uh, meet us at the end. So, yeah, we had like, a, he, he, he was sort of like, he used to build a lot of things with, his hands like in like a workshop so he'd build like a little um, puppet theatre for us and uh, he used to make toys for us because I guess we didn't have loads of money. Um, yeah it was just sort of like so he was very creative mm. and I guess it was our way of sort of bonding with him would be 
for him to encourage us to be creative up to a certain point. And then when it came to me starting a career in comedy, that's where my mum took over and she was like, no, this is what you want to do, you should go and do that. Really? And my dad was more like, get a job in IT, son. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to. I'm no, but I'm not, I'm no good at that stuff. Also, what I was saying before was like, you know, you've got, I mean, this is like a... What's Raymond, Nick, Raymond couldn't care less. Will you describe what's going on, Nick? Well, there's sort of like a, like a standoff. There's two dogs, one of them. What's your dog called? Chloe. Chloe. So Chloe... Oh, Chloe's completely lost interest in Raymond now. Raymond wasn't really aware that Chloe existed. Chloe stopped dead centre in the middle of the path, splayed out. Flat on the floor, staring at Raymond, and Raymond was just sort of like pottering around, not really paying much attention. Come on, Raymond! And now it's become a thing, uh, but I think they're both over it, really. Do you think they've Chloe's been... gone back to it. No, Chloe's really. That means she wants to play. That's the play position. Nick. But this is Raymond's on default mode. He's sort of like unimpressed with everything. Not even Waterloo Park would do to you, darling. Oh, look, and <laughs> business as usual. <laughs> okay. we, we carry on again. Come on, Raymond. There you go. He's keeping up with us now, Nick. Yeah, but it's downhill. <laughs> <laughs> He's in front of us now. And, uh, but do you find that with dogs that everyone just wants to sort of like touch your dog and own your dog a little bit? Yeah, and I quite like that. He can run. Yeah. Come on, we're going to give it here. So, yeah, so... And was your... Were your family... Did you laugh a lot? Was it a funny family? Uh, yeah. I suppose... Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it, it... Well, I've got an older sister who's quite serious. But I think we sort of, like, developed our taste through comedy from our parents. Did you? Yeah, like my dad would be into one sort of thing and my mum would be into, you know, so I, my dad used to read us stories and then he would fall asleep while he was reading us bedtime stories and I'd be wide awake and I'd climb over him and I'd go downstairs and I'd watch Jasper Carrot with my mum or French and Saunders or The Young Ones or stuff like that. Like 1980s London, yeah. early 1980s. Um, so we got all like British TV comedy of the time from my mum, I think. And my dad was more into kind of uh, stuff like Mel Brooks. And so we'd watch films with my dad. And when he would laugh, do you know what I mean? There's that thing where your parents are laughing at stuff and you can't quite work out what it yeah. is that's funny but you kind of mimic them. Yeah. And then eventually you kind of, I guess you sort of either adopt their sense of humour or you wake up one day and you go, that's not funny at all. And did you have pets, Nick, your family? No, I, I always wanted a dog. Um, and I haven't ruled it out. One day I shall probably get a dog, but I might move to the countryside one day. And, you know, in, the, in an unwritten future, I don't know. I don't know what's ahead of me. I imagine at some point in my life I will have a dog. I think my dad had dogs and they died and it broke his heart. And I think he wanted to protect us from that. 
is one way of looking at it. And the other way is that he couldn't be bothered. <laughs> but I've always liked dogs. I got attacked by a dog once on Brighton Beach. Um, me and my dad drove my mum and my sister to Gatwick Airport and they went away together to Venice mm -hmm. for a fortnight. And me and my dad had to make our own fun. <laughs> and my holiday consisted of going to Brighton Beach after we dropped them off at Gatwick and then spending two weeks <laughs> separate, you know, in separate rooms. Um, I got attacked by a dog bite on the beach. And then the owner came around and it was um, Paul McGann. And in our family, there was Joe McGann, who was in the upper hand, and Paul McGann. And I'm sure there were other McGanns, but there was like a family likeness. And so in our family, we used to say, he's a McGann. And when this dog attacked me and then Paul McGann walked around the corner and he walked off and then we both looked at each other and went, He's a McGann. <laughs> but it was sort of odd that my dad knew who Paul McGann was because my dad is not oh, up to date on pop culture. So there's a barbecue that's going on over here. Oh, doesn't that smell nice? So were you, um, I'm presuming you were funny then, Nick, at school and that was a kind of currency for you and you were sort of, were you popular? No, I was popular. So I, I grew up in Finchby Park and we grew up until about seven or eight and then we moved to St Albans and I had lots of friends in London and then moving school it took me about ten years to adjust and then when I, well now I'm older and now I'm old <laughs> I can choose where I want to live and I've moved back to North London and sort of where I live you know, you can from the roof you can see the cinema that my mum used to take us when we were little and all that stuff. So I'm sort of like moved back to mm. where I started. So did you make friends easily? No. I made I used to make friends really easily on holidays, you know. Um, I used to befriend like all the kids and tell stories and make them laugh and stuff like that. But um, I struggled at school. Did you? Yeah. What, just because... Do you think that's because you were moving around, though? No, well, partly. I think it was a little bit of a culture clash as well. If you get used to stuff... Um, like, London was very sort of, like, multicultural. Mm. Um, and, you know, you grow up... And there's like a big group of kids and, you know, there was Turkish kids and Pakistani kids and Nigerian kids and kids from all over the world. Mm. And then you move to St Albans and it's sort of very white and middle class. And so it's like a culture clash. Yeah. And so I guess, um, I guess like people pick out like what's different about that kid and so I was the fat kid and then it's just kind of like well that's sort of no one wants to be the fat kid it's miserable and um, I guess I didn't get over that for a long time 
Did you get bullied? Yeah. But it was never like physical bullying. It was like psychological and emotional stuff. Yeah. And there were other kids that got it worse. So was it a kind of... You had a smart mouth and you were funny and that was quite a useful no. tool to rely on. Although, did that come later? No, I was very quiet. I think what would... what I think, yeah, there's like... If you're bullied and you're not like part of the big group, you can either be the funny one and uh, make everyone love you, or you can sort of like be on your own and you develop a really strong imagination. And so I think that I... There's probably other stages along the way, but I think my thing was that I had a very overactive imagination. I was never into football, mm. and when I moved to... Uh, St Albans then I guess everyone was super into football and when you don't have that and I've noticed this later on in life certainly as a man mm. what I've noticed is football is such a useful tool as a shorthand so I'd be on set doing I did a sitcom with Romesh Rangadathan The Reluctant Landlord The Reluctant yeah. Landlord which is great <laughs> and thank you and what I noticed, Nigel Havers was on it. And he was one of the guest stars. And I remembered Nigel Havers from Don't Wait Up, from the 80s. I'd probably crawl over my dad, who was reading the book, and I'd go down and watch Don't Wait Up with my mum. And then I'm in a scene with him, and I get sort of like starstruck quite easily. And I'm in a scene with my, Nigel Havers. And I'm standing there, and I've got nothing to say to him. And I'm kind of like, what do you say to Nigel Havers? He's wearing a silk... He's, very, he's like got this immaculate suit, which is meant to be costume, but he's richer than the costume department, so he just bought one from home, do you know what I mean? And it's like, anything that you can provide, I can do better, you know? So, he, so he, he's looking absolutely fantastic, and he stood like three feet away, and I guess we're sort of like, you look busy, you like, go over your lines. And you, go, what, you feel like, you know, you're like beating yourself up in your head internally, you're screaming, just like, go, say something to him, say something. And then Ramesh walks in, like, uh, you know, cool as a cucumber. And he walks straight over to Nigel Havers, puts his hand up, says, thanks for doing my show, uh, what team are you? And then they just start talking, and then it's that. And you kind of like go, I don't have that. Yeah. And you can talk to anyone with football. I used to work in a pub, and you just, you know, um, I would watch all of these conversations just start from nowhere, and people, everyone's got football in common. And I just think, if I have kids... I'm going to make them football fans, so at least they've got that, do you know what I mean? Whereas, you know, it's difficult to start a conversation over Thundercats when you're 40, you know? I like talking to people, and I don't have football, so it's like one of those things, you know, where you're kind of like, well, what do you do? You can't just be quiet for the rest of your life. <laughs> so then you make it an asset. But I, I feel like I've always got on better with women than men. Do you, Nick? Why do you think that is? Because there's... I don't like football. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I, I don't know. Um, I like to think I'm not competitive. And I also feel like competitiveness brings out sort of like an ugly side to me that I don't like. And so, so I don't know, I guess kind of like when I'm not surrounded by other men, there's not kind of like this kind of competition that's going on. Yeah, so and then you, you can actually just chat to people, can't you? Do you prefer yourself around women then? That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I guess so. 
Did you find it easy to sort of talk to women and stuff though? Were you confident with girls when you were younger? I wasn't confident with anyone and I think there was a certain part of it where they had to do make the first steps or do a bit of the heavy lifting at first. But well, when I was at secondary school there was, you know, everyone was super into PE, everyone was super into sport, which happens up until you get to the sixth form. Yeah. And when you get to the sixth form, then, like, everyone that did drama and art sort of, like, took over. And it got to, I didn't have, like, any friends for, like, until about year 10 or 11. And then, which is right at the end of school. I did have some friends, that's not fair. I, I say that and didn't have any friends. I did have some friends, but I didn't have very close friends. Mm. And... Um, and then when it got to sort of like just before leaving to the sixth form, I started hanging around in the art block. Maybe this is like year 10. I started hanging around in the art block where all of the people that do art and drama and music and drugs, they all hang out. <laughs> and they go to the pub at the weekends, whereas everyone that does PE that's in your year, they all get dropped off around a friend's house by their parents and then picked up at the end of the night. Yeah. Whereas if you go around the art block, there's like people in the sixth form, people just about to go to university, you know, you've got like all ages, it's not really about what year you're in, it's about what you're interested in. Mm, mm. Were you an extrovert, Nick? Um, I mean, it's quite a loose word, that, isn't it? It's hard to, but I no, mean... No, I, I don't think so. I think that I found, I think I found social situations exhausting. Um, and I still do, really. And I think that when you do stand-up, you can get away with being kind of like an extroverted introvert or whatever it is. You know, you can get away with... You're not actually... You, although you're on stage and you're performing and there's hundreds of people in the room, you're not actually dealing with hundreds of people on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Let's go and sit under the tree where we can relax. Sounds a bit creepy, <laughs> isn't it? Go on, say it again. OK. Let's go and sit under the tree. Well, we can relax. All right, Creepmeister. <laughs> Come on, Ray. Yeah, so you're saying that's really fascinating, Nick, about how stand-up, it's possible for introverts to sort of do that job because you're sort of not directly engaging, are you? It, dep it depends. I know comedians that don't even want the audience lit so that they can't see them and they can just pretend they're on their own, you know? I like seeing the audience and I like going on stage and I like seeing the audience and interact act interacting with them. But it's almost like, I wouldn't say that um, I'm on standby all day and then I come alive when I'm on stage, but I certainly... Um, well, I do come alive when I'm on stage, but I wouldn't say that the rest of the time I'm kind of like a zombie. Whereas I think some people find going on stage um, draining or overwhelming. The idea that you're actually eye to eye with the people that are sort of judging you. It depends what your outlook is on stand-up comedy because I, I know that I get very anxious and very nervous about performing and then when I'm on stage, as soon as I'm on stage it's fine because I know whether it's going well or it's going badly or whatever but until I get on stage then it's all up to your imagination and I know some people that can't wait to get on stage whereas I'm just sort of, 
I sort of dread it until I have to do it, and then do you? Do and you then I enjoy it. Do you find it hard if you've got a gig that night? Are you quite stressed during the day? It depends how far through the run it is. Like if I'm on tour, you get to a certain point on the tour when you you're not on autopilot, but you can kind of like get to the venue, do your get in, uh, have a little relax, maybe see a bit of the town, and then go on stage and do a good show. But like towards the beginning when you're still sort of like learning the show and getting used to it like the whole day is sort of a write-off really? and then the, like when I did my first gig um, my first gig ever it was kind of like there'd be a fortnight of just you know dread of kind of like almost not being able to move because you're just panicking so much about the fact that you've got to get up on stage and then you, I did the gig and it went fine and then in the early days, so I did my first gig and then about three, four months later I started doing it like more regularly. But when I started, there weren't that many gigs. Um, and so you'd do a gig and then you get on at another gig, but it would be two weeks away. So maybe it would take you two weeks to get to, you know, of, of nerves building up. And then yeah. you do your gig and then rather than learning from that gig and then doing the next gig and putting that into practice, you'd have another two weeks to get nervous again. So you kind of like didn't learn much. Mm. At, 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 I didn't learn much at first because I was just always too nervous about the gig. But when you get more into it, then... It Presumably when you do your first Edinburgh as well, because you've got consecutive gigs, it's that 10,000 hours thing, isn't it? That you've got, you're, you're just getting you, so many hours. As a stand-up, you can do a year's worth of... Like when you're starting yeah. out, I would always recommend doing Edinburgh. I think later on it becomes kind of like you can get sucked into... Um, Oh, well, that's what we do. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's sort of like, it's like, it sort of takes care of your year as well. Because you do it in August. It's like, it's, like a, it's like a school year. Yeah. So at the beginning of the year, all, uh, September, all the new kids have started. And then around Christmas time, you start getting ready for your exams. And then you do your exams in the summer. And then, as, and then a new year group of comedians have like established themselves with their first hours or whatever. Um, when was the first moment when you thought, I want to... I mean, was there a conscious decision? Did you think, I, I want to be a comedian? Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so when I started hanging around with all those kids at school, um, we did drama and then our drama teacher uh, took us up to the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, when I was 16, in 1997, we did Romeo and Juliet. That must have been so exciting. It was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. It's amazing. We were 16, so we were sort of drinking at the weekends yeah. anyway. And so when we went up to Edinburgh, we did the show. The, thing, the show was on at about 11.45 or maybe 11 o'clock. Romeo and Juliet, it was over by 1 o'clock. Um, and then we basically would go back to our shared accommodation We'd get changed, and then we'd have the rest of the day to do whatever. And I used to go to watch stand-up comedy, like we all did. And I saw like Al Murray's second show at the Pleasance, and I saw uh, Jason John Whitehead at the Tron. And there are all these, you know, you're watching comedy and you're watching theatre because we were like doing drama um, at school, so part of it was educational. But like mainly, we were getting drunk and watching stand-up comedy and then 10 years later you know 12 years later uh i'm doing gigs at the pleasance i'm doing gigs at the tron and it's like oh i'm doing this i think the moment that i started doing 
stand-up was that I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had my own theatre company out of university. I ran my own little theatre company where we did theatre education and took that around schools. And then that sort of went nowhere. And so I was in like bands and I was in writing theatre and stuff like that. And I wrote this big list of all this. And I literally didn't know where I was going. I did really well at university. I did well at school in the end. Did but you? without putting a lot of work into it. So I was sort of like, I don't know what, what to do. And so I made this list. Um, and then one of the only things that didn't involve other people, aside from write a book, write a novel, which requires thousands of hours and sitting by yourself and doing it. Um, I wanted to do something like immediately. So I found a stand-up course, which was a one-day course. Did that. They said you're good, or that you're good enough to like do whatever you did today at a, at a club. That must have been great when they said that. Were you really happy? It was amazing because I was sort of like picked out of the group. Like everyone else was kind of like, um, uh, hadn't done anything, I think. There was mm. sort of like um, people in catering and people in nursing. and they were like, But I'd already been writing theatre and I'd already performed and stuff. So people kind of wanted to do it. Maybe it was a gift for like their birthday to do mm. a course or maybe it was you know, just out of curiosity. But for me, it was sort of like, maybe I'll try this. And then at the end of the day, he was like, oh, if you just did what you did today... Mm. you've got a starting point for an act and it was like I've graduated in 2002 two, yeah 2002 and it was like the first time I felt like I don't know anything about this but I am fascinated by it and I want to get back on stage again and get good at it and it was like the first time since school or the first time since university that I felt like I was learning something there'd been like four years where you just sort mm. of like is this what it is now once you finish all your education, is that it? Like learning is optional, you know. You you know, and all you're going to do is you're going to get thicker. <laughs> do you know what I mean? If you're not learning, you're just forgetting information that you used to know, right? And so when um, when I started doing stand-up, I was like, I'm at the bottom of a ladder that I want to climb, you know. As opposed to halfway up a ladder I don't want to be on. You know? So. So that was what was that was that was the moment where you kind of like go oh this is this is great, and then it opened doors to music and to acting and to directing and all this other stuff. What did your parents say then? Did you, were you sort of saying to people right? I think this is it. I think I want to be a, a stand up. And how did that go down with people? Uh, so I was working at a, um, I was working at Business Link in Hatfield. Uh, I was a temp and I was doing like 9 to 5.30. So my joke was, I, do, I work 9 to 5.30, which is half an hour longer than Dolly Parton ever fucking bothered with. And um, that was my big joke. And, I love that um, joke. Uh, and um, I'd, do, I'd do that. So I was working however many hours a week and I'd get paid 200. I'm so laughing at the Dolly Parton. Yeah, it's great. It's a great. I'll bring it back. I'll bring... It's such a good joke. <laughs> I'll get a job in admin and then I'll, and then I can use it again. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was working like 40 hour weeks, so or however long the week was, 45 hour weeks. And then at the end of it, I was getting paid 205 quid. I love that you remember that. It's 205 quid. You yeah. go, that's criminal, right? 
It's like, what do you do with 205 quid? You drink it because you can't save it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, what am I meant to do with 205 quid? I'm not going to buy a house with 200. It's, I haven't got time to do anything else in the week because I'm working every single day. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I hated the job. The job was terrible because it was two jobs. At the beginning of the week, you would have to uh, take in these forms with people's addresses and uh, national insurance numbers and everything like that, and they'd be handwritten, and you'd have to take these handwritten forms and type them by hand into a computer, and if they were wrong, you had to redo it. So you couldn't do it hungover. Mm -hmm. You had to pay attention, right? So you had to pay attention with this mind-numbing job, data entry, and you had to transfer handwritten pieces of paper into... Uh, digital files, right? So that's what you're doing Monday to Wednesday lunchtime. And at Wednesday lunchtime, you stuff envelopes for the rest of the week and you print out labels and stick them on the envelopes, right? And it was like, <laughs> you'd be so bored of the data entry by Wednesday lunchtime, you'd be like, uh, please, can we just move on to the envelopes? And then you'd do the envelopes for the rest of the week and then you'd be bored shitless with the envelopes. And then you go, thank God on Monday, I go back to the data entry. And you'd do that and it was like, oh my God. And so it wasn't even kind of like, I wasn't saving any money. It was just kind of, I was sort of like in this perpetual cycle. And anything that I could save, I sort of like put towards Edinburgh. Um, so what did my parents think? My parents, my dad wanted to, me to be kind of like get into IT, um, and my mum was just kind of like, "Well, this is the time to do it. This is sort of like your last chance to do it, maybe, you know." And I don't believe that, but I think it was like I was in my mid to late twenties. Mm. I just discovered this thing. For me, it was like an expensive hobby. It was like mm. I love doing stand up. If I could do this every every night. For the rest of my life, um, that would not be a bad life. I'd be happy with that. Um, I think my parents, my dad wanted me to like get a proper job, and my mum was like, "I want you to soar like an angel. I want you to say, well, was, I want you to spread your wings and soar like an eagle." And it was like, "All right, all right, mum." Oh, I love Mrs. Howe. So, um, but she was like the maths one, and my dad was the creative one. But is that maybe why she said that then? I think maybe my dad had some bad experiences and was sort of like trying to protect her. I suppose with parents you just want them to be able to, you know, kids to be able to look after themselves and pay their bills really. <coughs> but until you start doing something, I think it all feels impossible. Mm. So when you said, when you asked, you know, uh, did you always want to be a stand-up or did you always want to get into comedy? No, because my favourite, like, I was always into comedy. Like, when I was little, I used to watch comedy with my parents, and then when I was older, me and my sisters uh, were into, like, the Mary Whitehouse experience and Fist of Fun, and then I developed my own taste. My sister liked Eddie Izzard, and, and we both liked Joe Brand, and I liked Jack D. And then Jack D was my comedian, and then Harry Hill, Lee Evans. But you watch these comedians, and you go, they're the best. How do you do that though? That's, a, that's an other thing. That is something that other people do. That's something that Jack D does. Ha, hey, for a start, how do, you, how do you remember all those words? How do you stand up there for an hour? How do you have the confidence to, how, like, where do you start? And of course, you don't start with Jack D live at the Palladium uh, that I had on VHS. You don't start there. That's, that's, that's a goal. You start a lot smaller. 
And so maybe I'd always been a little bit curious to be like, oh, it's sort of like a monologue. Maybe I could do that. I've made people laugh in real life. And, and people sort of, I guess, said, that, oh, you should be a comedian because I'd sort of make them laugh or whatever. But you never think of that as a thing. But when you start doing it and you realise, actually, 90% of being a comedian at the beginning is failing, is like not being funny, going in with your big ideas, getting it, getting it beaten out of you by the audience, and then having to like go, all right, What's, what I find funny in my head and what people find funny out loud are two different things. Yeah. And then having to, you know, those early gigs, what they do is they break down. <laughs> if you want to do it, you want to do it. But they break down your confidence to the point where you've got to rethink how you do it. And then you build up again. And then you build up to the point that you're doing an hour. And then you go, oh, actually, it's the easiest, you know. It's not the easiest thing in the world, but in, I find... I find doing five minutes very difficult, and I find doing 10 minutes difficult. 20 minutes is slightly easier, but an hour, I love. I, can, I find, in terms of all of the stages of doing stand-up comedy, I find standing on stage doing an hour of new material the easiest, and then it gets you know, harder again. I first saw you, I think what, it was at the Tron, and it was keep hold of the gold, which keep would have been 20... Uh, when was that? 2000 and 2010. 2010. And I was in Edinburgh. I was doing the Frank Skinner radio show up there. And Gareth Richards, who's a mutual friend of ours, he said, oh, I'm going to go and see my mate. He's, he's really funny. So we go into the Tron and we sat in this basement. And I honestly, I just couldn't even... It was... I hadn't laughed like that since I was sort of a toddler or something, where I was just clutching my stomach and I was in pain. And, I mean, poor Gareth, of course, I didn't really quite realise the etiquette, because not only was I going, I mean, that is incredible, I mean, that is the You're best show. all the way through. <laughs> yeah, I know, afterwards, I just kept going on. He went, yeah, yeah, it's really good, yeah, it's really good. Oh, right, no, after but, the show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, but he is the best guy. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. a comedian as well, and he's like, yeah, all right. Yeah. No, and then I saw <laughs> Jimmy Carr later, and I went, I have seen this guy. It's the best stand-up I've ever seen. It's the best show I've ever seen. I mean, it was last night you came to see my show, yeah? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but honestly, Nick, it just... Oh, well, Jimmy Carr came to see my show. I know, I, t- I know. Well, so I is that because of you? Yeah. Right, because that was a big game-changer for oh, me. Oh, good. Because he tweeted... Gareth about... told me that once. He said, I think Jimmy's gone to see... Because I said, you've got to go and see this guy's show, Keep Hold of the God. He said, where is it? And I said, The Tron. And... Yeah. Yeah, he came to see it. He sat at the side. Yeah. And I got him on stage with everyone else. With everyone else. Was well, it nice to meet you? Thing, yeah, nice to meet you, nice to greet you. And what I'd do is I'd get everyone, for the listeners at home, or driving, I would, <laughs> I would get the whole audience on stage. I'd start with one person and eventually the whole audience would be on. Yeah. And I think Jimmy Carr thought he had uh, diplomatic immunity or something <laughs> because he's Jimmy Carr. And I'd go, I don't give a fuck who you are. You get on stage as well. I said, Jimmy Carr got on stage. And he tweeted about it. And then mm. that was when like, I had people from home that were like, Jimmy Carr just tweeted about it. And, I, and Twitter was quite new yeah I didn't really know what Twitter I wasn't on it <laughs> and so Jimmy Carr was tweeting about me and then and then all of a sudden all of these people at home that thought oh Nick's a, Nick's trying to be a comedian were kind of like oh Nick is a comedian mm. I suppose now so, so what I'm saying Nick is I mean it's all down to me it's weird. down to you I finally <laughs> I found finally met the puppet master that's behind it all but 
Yeah, it's interesting. And I just, I did get that sense with you when I saw that show that there was, it was like I'd never really seen anyone behave like that. And I think what it was was just that danger. So, and that is essentially what you do, isn't it? Your comedy is very sort of dangerous, your comedy. I think for like audiences, they're, especially those first two two or three or four shows, yeah. There was kind of like an element to, whoa, what's he gonna do this show? When more and more people started coming and you couldn't get everyone on stage and, you know, uh, I sort of ran out of ideas and things to do with audience participation and I got interested in other things. Um, yeah, when, 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 when I first started doing audience stuff, I think with that Keep Hold of the Gold show, that was kind of like me working out what it was that made me different. Mm. And then with the show that came after that, it was kind of like, well, there's going to be an element of audience stuff. And it was in this tiny little port cabin. So, so the oh, year, yes, so the, I saw, yeah. the year before Keep Hold of the Gold, I did a thing where I'd make someone a cup of tea on stage, mm. and I had a kettle and a cup of tea and a tea bag, and I would chest. There was one person in the audience, and I'd just chat to. Them. This is two thousand and nine. Mm. It was a show called Bad Things Happen in Trees, and it was a filler show because I was meant to do another show with two other comedians who dropped out right at the last minute, and so I had to fill an hour. And so part of what I did to fill an hour was I'd make a cup of tea. And it would take as long as it takes to make a cup of tea. So you boil the kettle and you're chatting to someone. I'd do a, poet, a poem when we're boiling the kettle. And then, you know, I'd say, well, would you like milk? And then I'd say, you know, do you like the milk in first or do you put it in at the end? And do you like sugar? And, you know, it's all very, like, calm. And then I'd fill the cup with like boiling water and I'd make the tea and I'd hand the tea uh, tea cup to someone on the front row and they'd pass it back and everyone would have this you know hot mug of tea and it would get to the person that had ordered the tea and then I'd stand over them and I'd say down in one down in one down in one and they'd panic <laughs> and because it's boiling water <laughs> and and, uh, and you go no I'm only joking and then everyone was like, oh, all relaxed. And so it's like, oh, it's fun to play with the audience, you know, like they're there. Yeah. You got offered TV stuff as a result of Edinburgh. And, and what was the big thing, what was the big call for you in terms of career-wise? Like Jimmy Carr saw me, thanks to you. <laughs> and, then, and then you have to do this audition process for 8 out of 10 cats, which is just 8 out of 10 cats, not Countdown, but just the regular show. And you have to do this sort of like audition process where you go to this uh, church around the corner from Sepatron in uh, Shepherd's Bush. Shepherd's kind of, Bush. Yeah. And so you go to this church that they've rented out, and you've got another comedian that's standing in for that you're on the circuit with, who you kind of like do gigs with, but they're Jimmy Carr, and you're kind of like, and now I've got to respect you. This is sort of <laughs> it's this weird sort of, but I know, but now you're in charge. Okay. And so then you'd do like a run of the thing. I think I made it through the first one. And then the second stage is that you do it with Jimmy. But you do it, it feels like the lunch break in their office. And what was it like when you first, had you met Jimmy before? Um, had I met him? I'm not sure if I had met him. 
But he came, uh, I think Jimmy Carr's great in that he, um, he like encourages new comedians. And so the, this, is, this is a testament to him. I did the second um, 8 out of 10 Cats audition. I think Catherine Ryan did my audition as well. And Jimmy Carr did it. And I was like, I, the, I'm not saying that I was shit, but the people in the room didn't enjoy it. They didn't like me. And Jimmy said, well, you've got to have him because he's brilliant. And then because he, he pushed for me, I ended up doing the show. But the same thing happened with Russell Howard, where they filmed... Russell Howard was the, the big TV thing for me. What, good, is, Russell Howard's good news, was Yeah, it? after Keep Hold of the Gold, they put me on as, um, like, a Joker, uh, like a Joker card, mm -hmm. where they needed, for instance, eight comedians, and I was the ninth. And if one of the others didn't work out, then they'll put me on. But I wasn't, I wasn't granted. I was their wild card because they thought I was going to basically punch someone in the audience. And so they were like, well, we'll have him on, but we're not sure about him. And then my Russell Howard went, went really like, great in the room. I, I don't remember recording it because it went so well. I came off and then they said, you've got to go back on and do some pickups. And I went back on and just by coming back on stage, the whole audience cheered. But I didn't remember like, it going well. So... Sometimes when I read interviews with you, Nick, people are... I find Surprised. it interesting. Well, people do this slightly odd thing, which is, he's nothing like his on-stage persona. No one is. <laughs> no one is. It's like, it's like even Jimmy Carr, you know, he does that an hour and a half of one-liners. You interview him afterwards, he's not talking in one-liners, do you know what I mean? It's like everyone that gets on stage to do comedy, there's nothing natural about it. The, the, uh, the art of stand-up comedy is to make it look like... Uh, you've just thought of that thing and it's coming out of your mouth for the first time. Mm. So it's a testament to how good you are as a performer, I suppose. Yeah. It's like a compliment. My um, agent said that when she first started out, she saw Jack D. And she saw Jack D one night at the comedy store and he did this amazing material where he just came up with everything off the top of his head. He improvised it and it was amazing. And then she saw him the next night and he did the exact same show. And... I think there's some audience members that find that disappointing to think that it wasn't just for them. Mm. And then there's some audiences, like what my agent said, was she said, and she thought it was the most amazing thing ever because she thought it was amazing when he was just making it up. But actually, the fact that the, 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 the skill isn't in making it up off mm. the top of your head. The skill is in making it look like you're making it up. And that's what she left with. And I think that that's the thing. And you get, like, like you say, you get seasons comedy writers and comedy critics that say well he's nothing like he is on stage he's like how many comedians have you met but with comedians that's what i find interesting is that <coughs> i think you know if it wouldn't say anthony hopkins didn't attack me and start eating <laughs> me eat alive do you know what i mean that's yeah. what's so interesting is that they d i think sometimes it's people find it hard to separate that it is essentially a performance which is why i wonder what that's like for you particularly when you started doing telly and I suppose, you know, you did Uncle, which was hugely successful, and you've done a lot of successful TV shows. I get more cats. of it from Uncle, where Do people you? think that I am exactly, you know, I'm like I am on Uncle. People people write, write to me and say, uh, oh, I get stoned all the time like you do in Uncle. <laughs> or like, no, like you. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't do drugs. So I'm like, do you know what I mean? But you have people that, like, see all this common ground in this TV show that you do, 
and and you, you go, oh, I'm nothing. I'm 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 not like that character, you know. But there are sort of like now that I've had more space between me and Uncle, I do sort of like later on notice similarities. We go, oh, I am a bit like that, and I do do that. And do you? How do you find being recognised, Nick? Like when people come up to you, is it? If people come up to me and they say hello, um, I'm a big fan. Or like <laughs> they have to say that they're a big fan. They can't just say that they're a fan. But if people come up and they say, oh, you know, um, they acknowledge that they've... They, if people recognise you and they come up to you and they go, can I have a photo or can I have an autograph or whatever like that, that's brilliant. I love meeting people. Mm. I love knowing that stuff that I've done has sort of like reached people and we can have a conversation about it or anything. It's great. When people recognise you and then they try and sneak a photo like they're trying to steal something from you. It's just like, if you come up to me, you'll get a really good photo. But if you steal a photo off me, then I think it's just rude. Yeah. So I just feel like I'm a person, you can come up to me. And, and I'm not like a superstar where I'm walking around you know, batting people away. It's kind of like, I, li I, like, I like it. What I think, I'm at the level of, I'm at, the, I'm at a comfortable level where it makes walking down the road in London like, I'm walking down the street in a, like a village, you know, where people will wave or people will say hello or whatever. And, um, and you can have these nice, friendly little interactions, but it's not like I, walking through Soho with Romesh is like you're constantly taking photos for them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You're constantly getting phones handed to you saying, can you take a picture of me with Romesh? And you're like, sure. I was an uncle. <laughs> have you have you seen BBC Three? It's it's not on anymore. Is it is it back? <laughs> it's, do you know what I mean? You know Susie Dunn. You know eight out of ten. I've done. You know, Susie, I'm that guy. Uh, I'm the guy that sings to Susie. Um, Are you quite shy, Nick, with new people? I'm shy. Um, yeah, I suppose I'm shy with with like. In terms of like me, uh, like going to a social situation, like a friend's wedding or something like that, in terms of like meeting people, I find if um, if people if I if I meet a fan, then we've got like they can say, oh, I know you from that thing, and I can back that away really quickly, and then I can ask them about them, and I can have a conversation with them, I'm fine with that. And it doesn't, the whole experience doesn't have to be about me. It doesn't have to be, oh, well, what was your favourite joke? That I've ever, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, I, I'll sort of like scrub past that as quickly as possible. Whereas when you are sort of like on a day-to-day -day social level, I've, I've not necessarily noticed it with me, but I've noticed it with people that I know where, but I suppose I have family members that even do this, where they kind of like go out of their way to say they haven't heard of you and they've never seen anything that you've done. And you're kind of like going, I'm fine with that. But it's such a weird opener. Do you know what I mean? For someone to say, what do you do? And you go, oh, I'm a comedian, I've done... And I tend not to say that either. I tend to say I'm a writer. Do you? I say I, I, I'm a... Like, it's weird... I have like lots of mental health problems and you go to the doctors and you say oh, I've got depression or whatever and they go right and how long have you had this depression and you go oh I've had it for all my life really um, 
and they go, what do you do for a living? And then you go, I'm a writer performer. Because you don't want to have to get into... <laughs> yeah, you're a comedian. Also with the, with the police as well. If you ever... I got my house broken into... Um, no, I didn't. I got my phone nicked. And when I got home, I had to go and contact the police through my computer because I didn't have a phone. The police came over and they were like... And I was literally stood in my flat, surrounded by merchandise with my name all over it. And the police were in my flat and said, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, stood next to DVDs that said Nick Helm all over them. And I said, oh, I'm a comedian. And they go, oh, tell you who my favourite comedian is. Uh, Joe Lycett. And I'm like, this is at the time when we were both on TV quite a lot. Joe's like a superstar now. Yeah. But, um, but at the time we were sort of like, what do you mean Joe Lycett? We go, yeah, he's great on um, 8 out of 10 cats. And I was like, I was on the same fucking episode as him. Do you know what I mean? I was on the other side. Right, fine. Um, so they're in my living room surrounded by all my merchandise and they're telling me that they're a Joe Lycett fan. It's like, that's a bit too close to, to comfort. But um, I know you've said, you've mentioned you've had mental health issues and I, you know, I mean, I think that's, that's really good that you've um, been honest about that because I think it's helpful for other people. But That's why I would share it. Is it? Because I find talking about it, I find I haven't, it's only until quite recently that I've deliberately started talking about it. And what's happened is, I've always talked about it, I just wasn't aware that I was talking about it. And what I found was more and more people coming up to me and writing to me and talking to me about mental health and depression. And I was like, oh right, okay. And it became a lot on my plate to deal with because mm. I've not mastered my own mental health and I go to the doctors and I sort of like, um, it's like this lifelong puzzle that you're trying to solve and you might not solve it, but I think now my mission is to sort of like learn how to cope with it mm. uh, as in the best way possible. And as I'm learning this, I find it helpful to like share it with people. And my last show, Phoenix from the Flames, was really, it was like a show that was all about my mental health and it was... And I don't want to do every show about kind of like oh, what's wrong with him this week, you know. But I wanted to sort of like lay my cards out and say, this is what this show is. It's about mental health. It's about my mental health. It's how I deal with it. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I'm just going to talk about it. And then the idea was that people would come and see me because I knew a lot of my audience, a lot of, this is, this is a bitter pill to swallow, but a lot of my audience suffer from depression. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and you kind of like uh, you don't really want to make a name for yourself. So yeah, my audiences are miserable, but they are right. And um, and so I think one of the hardest things in the world is to be dealing with something, and your instinct is always to cover it up yeah. or to make 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 the best of it or make it. And actually. Sometimes it's just important to just say, I'm fucked, actually, and I need help. And in me talking about it, what I found through interacting with audiences, I'll always come out at the end of a gig and I'll sign, like, posters and merchandise and stuff like that. Um, and what I, did, what I found was in meeting people, they'd come up and they'd say, oh, your show helped me uh, talk to my parents about it or to my partner about it or to go to a doctor and get medical help about it. And I can only ever sort of like tell people about my personal experience 
and I wouldn't say, I took these pills, so you should, mm. or I stopped taking these pills, so you should. It's always like, this is what worked for me. And now it's up to you to go out and sort of like work out what works for you. Um, but I just think in talking about it, it normalizes it and it helps people. And I think as a stand-up comedian, I'm incredibly grateful that it was something that I got good at. It was something that I love. It's something that I enjoy. Um, I, in the 10 years after university, before my first TV appearance, I had no money. Uh, I never went on holiday. Uh, I was in a load of like uh, dead-end jobs and I was just trying to survive with this expensive hobby that I discovered. And then when it took off, it's taken me around the world and I've seen stuff and um, I've seen audiences and I've connected with the audiences and, um, and comedy's brilliant because people come to a comedy, they laugh and hopefully they leave in a better mood and they leave happier just by comedy in general. And then in talking about things that affect me, I think you can generalise and you can sort of like go, oh, I'm going to write a general thing about how people are meant to feel about depression. Or you can write something that's specific and, and personal. And the more personal I write, the more I think it, um, it, it uh, um, other people can identify mm. themselves in it. And yeah. I think that that's a gift. I think I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, you, by, by, by doing something and expressing yourself and using it as an art form, uh, you can kind of connect with people and you can help people and you can help them help themselves. And I'm not Jesus, but I'm just like saying that I, um, I'm proud of that aspect of what I do. And not every show has to be that, but it turns out I, I can't not talk about it. People now are saying we should all talk about mental health and we should talk about mental, like mental health, mental health. Mm. And my thing is like, what is mental health? Because I have noticed myself that I suffer from mental health issues, but what are the specifics of it and what is it that I'm dealing with? And am I dealing with uh, depression mm. or am I dealing with uh, anxiety mm. or ADHD or um, uh, 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 OCD? And um, am I dealing with one of those things or am I dealing with several of those things? Like diagnosis, I think, is the thing. It's all very well that we all talk about like mental health, mental health, mental health. But nobody knows what mental health is unless you get specific. And, um, and things kind of like, you can treat one thing, but, but, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're treating the, the other thing. Mm. So I think what I'm going through at the moment is I'm trying to get diagnosed with what's actually wrong with me. Mm. so that I can sort of like work out a coping mechanism on how to move on with yeah. it. And other people in my audience, I'm not the expert, other people in my audience may be further down that road. It's a personal journey and other people might be further down that road and it's about like having those conversations and helping. You know, I go to therapy every week. Um, I've been to see doctors during uh, the last two years, during the pandemic, I've seen you know, and I took some time off from comedy just to sort of like work on my mental health because we had this time. Mm. Um, but um, what I find useful about therapy is that it's like a dumping ground for like, Yeah. I don't let things bother me in the week because I know that I've got one hour on a Wednesday. 
to sort of like I can put all that stuff. I found like I was getting to a point where I was boring all my friends, <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to do that, and I don't want to just use them as like a sounding board. Yeah. I want to get to a point where we're friends again, and we're all getting stuff out of this friendship. And so having therapy was a really good place for me because it meant that all of all of my you know issues that I have in the week can all go there. Um, do you, Nick? Are you? What do you like in a? What do you like to go out with, Nick? What do you like in a relationship? It depends what what mood, to, what what the season is. Do you know what I mean? It's like I'm um, I'm in a relationship. Uh, I've got a girlfriend. Uh, you know, I like to think I'm supportive. Um, yeah, I suspect you are. I would imagine you would be. Uh, I like cooking, but I haven't done a lot of cooking. I, you know, I mean, I, I've been I've been dealing with um, depression recently, and I think that that's very difficult for her to deal with. Um, and I feel very guilty about that. It's hard, isn't it, when you're with someone who's going through that, just not taking it personally, I suppose, as well, you know, that it's nothing to do with you. Yeah, but I think a large part of it is communication. And as, I think as long as you're... as long as you're communicating with people um, and you're letting them know that it's not their fault and that they're not doing it, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've been, I've, I've, I've been on the other side of that as well. I've been in relationships where I've been an absolute fucking nightmare, and I've been really depressed, and uh, and I've been a terrible burden on them, and I've felt awful about that, right? And I've also been in relationships where I've been, um, you know, I've put my own issues to one side, and I've focused entirely on helping them, and at the end something breaks, and then you're just like. I, actually, I've been ignoring my own problems for such a long time mm. that, uh, you know, when you look back at them, they've like, multiplied and you're mm. like, oh, God. So, you know, you open the door and it's like, oh, fuck, there's, it's a horror show. Um, and I feel like, it, I don't know, I feel like relationships, if you, if, if you, if, I mean, they're always difficult, I think, but it's about kind of give and take and... I'm going through, I'm, I've been going through like a phase that I've been finding really difficult um, and she's been really good and she's helped me but also she goes through times that are difficult and I help her. Mm. I think the key is not to have one-sided relationships. I've seen you angry on stage but how does your anger manifest itself off stage? Not like that. I think that that's, I think that's the thing. It's like, it's a caricature of... <laughs> what an unpleasant person would be like. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it's kind of like, and also like it's the act is, this is what a terrible comedian would do. They'd come on, they'd lose their temper, they'd blame the audience. Do you know what I mean? They'd shout at them, they'd call them all cunts and then they'd leave. And it's kind of like, it's, it, it, it's sort of like, it's ironic, you know? I know, but if I, that's why I'm assuming that's nothing like how you'd really be. So no. if I'm sort of, Let's say low-level anger, okay? So let's say we've had a fender bender. Um, well, I don't drive, so <laughs> I'd be like, it's probably my fault because I shouldn't have been driving. Um, I don't have a licence. Um, never learned. Uh, it's entirely my fault. Uh, okay, I've got one. But, let's but, say you're meeting a friend. This is the one, Nick. You're meeting Gareth. <laughs> yeah. And he turns up 
half an hour late. In all honesty, if I was meeting someone and they were late, it would be an absolute fucking godsend you know, to have half an hour to yourself. You're only going to take it off the end of your time with them anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's like you were going to meet for two hours, now it's only an hour and a half. It's their own time they're wasting. You get half an hour of solitude. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) You get your own time you're wasting. You get like you get half an hour of absolute uh, bliss to just uh, deal with your own thoughts. I what I try and do in 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 times of anger. What I try and do is I try and see it from their point of view. I'm um, I'm quite empathetic, um, which I'm only just really learning about. But it's about sort of like I'm I feel other people's um, uh, pain to the point of view that I often take their side over mine. You know. So someone will say, you did this. And I'll be like, well, maybe I did do that. <laughs> and you're right. You've got every right to be angry with me. Which sort of like works in kind of a way because you see it from other people's points of view. But it also works in a way where, you know, I've let, I've let the wrong people walk over me in the past. And it's kind of... Um, but in terms of anger, I don't, I don't generally get really angry. The anger that I feel is sort of like... Uh, you know, like the long-term seething, hmm. the government. I'm angry with the government. I'm angry with uh, lockdown. I'm angry with, you know, injustice and all of this stuff. You know, that's like that. But I don't get angry with people in the street. What's the dog called again? It, oh, Nick. I really. Rufus. He's called Raymond. Raymond. I'd really sure. like you to, to give him a little cuddle. Sure. Because look at this. Is he growing on you at all, Nick? I mean, I'm, I'm not taking it personally, but he hasn't given me any attention. But he hasn't given anyone any attention. Sit down, Raymond. Sit down next to Uncle Nick. When I first saw him, the thing is, what sort of person owns a dog like this, you know, is the question. Wow. <laughs> and, then when, and then you go, oh, you're normal. <laughs> But, but based on dogs, you kind of like go, oh, right, so maybe, maybe this person's a high-maintenance person. Or, do you know what I mean? It's like, what does the dog say about the owner? But in actual fact, you seem to have retained your personality. I want you to get a dog. Yeah, I'll, I'll get a dog. I think you will. I I'll get one will. on the way, way home. <laughs> I'll get a dog one day, I'm sure I will. What dog would you get if you were going to... Come on, Nick, let's I like walk. Jack Russells. Oh, I can see you with a Jack Russell. There's an integrity and an honesty to the Jack Russell that I think you possibly share. I don't like a... I don't want a big dog. But, yeah, <laughs> Raymond <laughs> is walking towards us instantly, but then got distracted by, like, a fly that was sort of... and stopped and looked at it, you know. We are way down on the list of important things in Raymond's life right now. And he keeps you hyper aware of that by the fact that he'll walk, walk on, assuming, like with most dogs, that he'll follow you. Like, though, he stopped and made friends with other people. Oh, yes, look, he's chatting to those kids. Come on, let's see a mini Yes. Do you know, you're absolutely right. He is like a mini sheep, isn't he? Yeah, he's a metal thing under the neck. 
Oh, yeah, that's his um, harness. Oh. I put his lead on. <laughs> he's adorable. Is he adorable? Do you like him? He's so exactly, he's exactly a mini. Hello. These kids, these kids have bonded with Raymond faster than I did. Oh. Do you like him? Yeah, he's adorable. <laughs> he's cute, isn't he? Yeah. He really likes you. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you. Oh, kids are all right. Yes. <laughs> not what I was, not what I was expecting. <laughs> Just really polite and nice and sweet. And like he likes dogs. Ah. Oh. It was when he said he's adorable. I thought they were going to kick him at first. <laughs> we're but, in Highgate uh, now, Nick. Yeah, we're in Highgate. <laughs> we're just a little bit up the road from Holloway Road. Sure. <laughs> you were getting out the maze. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I was just about to punch that child in the face <laughs> to protect the dog, but no, didn't need to. Put put stage Nick back in the box <laughs> for another time. <laughs> Raymond, are you going to say thank you to Nick? Nick, I really love chatting to you, and you've been so sweet with Raymond. I had a lovely. I had a, I'm going to say day. It'll crunch down in the edit, but I had a lovely afternoon stroll with you. Yes, it is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's a bit of a strange one, isn't he? What's that? Is he very young? No. I sort of worry about his age sometimes because I'm ashamed of how small he is. Yeah, he's about. And he's black, which is unusual. Hello. What's this one called? She's Maltese. Maltese, what's her name? Doris. Doris. Doris and Raymond, Nick. That's her name. Raymond. 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 Oh, Raymond. Yeah. Oh, what's Ray. that? Ray. Yeah. Is it your husband's name. Oh. How interesting. Yeah, what? So, what's what sort of dog is yours? Yours is a Maltese. Maltese Terrier. Maltese Terrier. Right. Yeah. It's very cute of your dog. Though. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. He's about um four. Yeah, she's four. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like. So about the right size. <laughs> Oh, yeah. thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Here you go. You see, already, I think you slightly pretended he was yours. I like that. You said, thanks very much. Yeah, I know. I just was fully uh, embracing, you know, this is my. I'm just sort of like trying to see how, what sort of a dog owner I would be. I'd be a good one. I'd be one that was like, you know, I, I don't just own a dog, but I've got like the chat to back it up when I bump into someone else. Nick, we've loved our day with you. Thank you so much. Will you say goodbye to Raymond? Well, goodbye, Raymond. I mean, all of that would have meant a lot more coming from him, but that's fine. I understand. He's tired. He's been walking. It's fine. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed listening to that. And do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.